honor the memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg this year with a gift from Descent Pins. 50% of profits go to great organizations like the New Georgia Project and the Baltimore Action Legal Team. Visit DescentPins.com to find RBG's Descent Collar Jewelry and lots of other great gift options today. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. The crunch of gravel underfoot is unmistakable, but it seems out of place in what sounds like a bustling city street. Yet this place, and the life it contains, isn't officially recognized as anything but a half measure. This is a camp for Syrian refugees, located in Lebanon's Bekaa Valley. Before the war, Syrians seeking agricultural work would reside here for part of the year. Now, the camp and its makeshift dwellings have housed displaced families for almost a decade. Despite the fact that Lebanon has the highest per capita refugee population, the government has refused to build adequate refugee camps. Instead, the camp leaders, called shawishes, broker every aspect of refugees' lives, from employment to the distribution of aid to interactions with Lebanese security forces. In the November issue, Alexander Jadosh wrote about three shawishes and the living conditions of refugees in their camps in the Bekaa Valley. I spoke with Jadosh about the shawish system and the politics that drive this no-policy policy. You mentioned the fact that Syrian refugees living in Lebanon are not called refugees, but instead displaced or even sometimes guests. And these euphemisms stem from a complicated and precarious division of political power that dates back to 1943 in Lebanon. Could you give us a brief overview of how this system came about and how it incentivizes the miscategorization and scapegoating of refugees that your piece describes? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So Lebanon obviously has a very complicated history, and a large part of that is based in this idea of Demographic balance, you could say, is kind of a is kind of a term that gets thrown around a lot. So going back to 1943, as you said, there was um, what was known as the uh, the National Pact, uh, which was an agreement between the various political uh, players at the time to divide power along sectarian lines. Um, so I can back up a little bit and just say that. Lebanon, despite being a very small country, is extremely diverse in terms of the religious affiliations religious kind of ethno uh, sectarian affiliations that people have. France, when it was acting as a colonial power in the region after World War I, kind of divided Lebanon out from the former Ottoman Empire to be a kind of uh, like sort of a safe haven or a home for the Maronite Christians with whom uh, a lot of European powers had longer relationships going back. They're technically part of, they're part of the Catholic Church. And, you know, in order to kind of give them a separate sort of space of their own, they carved out Lebanon. But then the final borders of Lebanon, for a variety of reasons, ended up uh, including very large numbers of uh, Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, Druze, as well as a wide variety of other smaller religious groups. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also large um, communities of Armenians, for instance, Greek Orthodox, uh, etc. So there was always a problem from the beginning of you know, a basic demographic question of how do you, how do you, how do you effectively divide power? Mm -hmm. uh, so the solution they came out with was this kind of sectarian power sharing system, uh, which gave, you know, to this day, for instance, the president of the country has to be a Christian. Uh, the speaker of parliament is a Shia Muslim and the prime minister is a Sunni Muslim. And that's, uh, that's, that's in effect. And then within parliament, you have different divisions as well. So there's, this is kind of rooted in, insofar as Lebanon has been kind of, has, has been an independent country, this has always been part of, you know, how, how, the, how the politics work. Now that balance more or less held, it was always kind of a tricky proposition, but it more or less held for a while. But with Israel's foundation, large numbers of Palestinians started to arrive to the country uh, in a first wave uh, in 1948. And then again, uh, later on, the PLO under Yasser Arafat like, came in uh, when they were uh, expelled from Jordan in uh, 
would be uh, 1970, um, I guess. So there were large numbers of Palestinians who came to the country. And then later, uh, political organizations, the, the Palestinian Liberation Organization coming in as well. And they're largely Sunni Muslims, obviously, mm -hmm. the Palestinians who came in. And that was, you know, it set in motion a wide variety of tensions that kind of culminated with uh, the kind of Christian-dominated army cra uh, clashing with Palestinian groups. Mm -hmm. uh, there were splits in the army. It's, it's a little too complicated to get into all the details now, but, you know, suffice to say that, you know, the, the tensions around that influx kind of led into the um, into Lebanon's own civil war, which lasted from 1975 to 1990. And it was mm -hmm. extremely uh, destructive. Uh, you go around Beirut and, you know, uh, you can still see there's still buildings with with bullet holes from the war. It's a major part of people's historical memory. Um, and a large number of Lebanese still kind of remember the uh, influx of Palestinians as a cause of this. Incidentally, Palestinians to this day um, face a wide variety of restrictions, uh, work restrictions, travel restrictions. They don't have Lebanese citizenship. They uh, live in areas where, which are still referred to as camps, uh, but have effectively become urban slums uh, for the most part. There's a lot of professions that they are restricted from, um, almost anything really outside of sort of more like menial labor, really. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so that it was never really, it was never really solved. Um, and a lot of people kind of like look back on this history uh, and there's, there's kind of a collective national trauma around it. Um, and so when the Syrians started to come in uh, after 2011, when the conflict, 2012 was really where it began to accelerate and you had hundreds of thousands of Syrians coming in, uh, a lot of people just saw the ghosts of that history uh, coming back. So a lot of people uh, kind of, I mean, these, these, these comparisons were often made uh, explicit uh, as well, um, both by ordinary Lebanese and by politicians. And so the strategy or the lack thereof that was developed was heavily influenced by that history. And the response was to, well, what they did was they, they decided to ban formal camps. You know, as I discussed in the piece, they uh, they decided not to let the UN set up uh, large formal camps like you see in, you know, most most other countries that are hosting large numbers of refugees. You'll see these, you know, it's it's kind of almost this universal image, uh, you know, the, the big white tents and, you know, the UN logo everywhere. They decided not to do that out of fear, essentially, that it would make the Syrian presence uh, permanent. If you establish camps, there was a fear that they could become militarized eventually and that you'd see kind of a repeat of the Palestinian experience. Uh, that's, that's, that's a large part of the equation. Um, there's a lot more to it, obviously. It's always highly complex and nuanced. But, but that's, the kind of, that's the kind of broad uh, strokes, like political uh, history that kind of led to this reaction mm -hmm. um, to the Syrians. Uh, coinciding with that, you also had a pre-existing agricultural system uh, in which uh, Syrian labor was providing uh, the, the, the vast bulk of uh, agricultural labor in Lebanon, seasonal migrants. And so you already kind of had an infrastructure for an informal camp system in place because you had these seasonal migrant camps. And so a lot of those camps became uh, refugee camps effectively uh, as they kind of grew in size, women and children joined, you know, this sort of thing. The system of government you describe, this very rigid division of religious groups across these specific positions. It's not like you could uh, maybe swap out a Sunni for the Christian president, right? And obviously that's led to a lot of problems, which you describe in the piece where the government really has been unable to grapple with some pretty basic domestic problems. And so some of that has to do with economics. But do you get a sense of, you know, when talking about this history, do you get a sense of a sort of a generational split with how perhaps a younger generation might view Syrian refugees? Or is it, or and that maybe more of the pressure and the discrimination is coming from the the gerontocracy that sort of embedded itself at the at the top. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is it is complicated. I think that generally speaking, if you look at the protests and the um, the the specific people who are you know the, the people who have been going out in the protests since last October who have identified the sectarian system as a, you know a primary hurdle to um, the reforms, uh, economic, social, political that the, the country really needs. Uh, obviously, there's it's, it's younger people really, really, really driving that. And 
I mean, you could you could speculate about why. I mean, I think having um, if you haven't really lived through the war and you don't have that, you know, for for you that, that particular trauma is not, or the suspicions or the fears that come around with it are are not quite as uh, immediate. You know, it's 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 probably easier to kind of uh, imagine a, a different future, or you have like a little less fear of of change, or you're just sick and tired of you know just not having a job, or you know you know the trash piling up on the streets, or any of these other myriad problems that have been developing and accelerating in Lebanon over the past couple of years. There's definitely a, a generational divide there, but it's you know it's not it's not clear cut uh, as well. I mean, there's always been older people who've kind of resisted the system. There's always, of course, there's younger people who are also, you know, highly embedded and invested in the system as it is. And I think that there's, there's also, you know, I, I you know, there's, there's traditional, uh, kind of, like the sort of divisions that you see everywhere between like uh, more sort of urban or rural spaces, mm -hmm. certainly uh, in Beirut uh, and before in Tripoli and some of the major uh, urban areas kind of support for these protests was a little bit more in my understanding, um, without having, you know, I should say, without having uh, spent a lot of time in Lebanon during the protests, but they did appear to be much more kind of uh, obvious in the urban areas. Uh, whereas if you go to some of like the smaller villages or places outside of Beirut, um, the sectarian system is maybe a little bit more entrenched. I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated. A friend once said, you know, being able to not be sectarian is, 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 is kind of a privilege. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you are living in a small village in which uh, a lot of access to employment, uh, maybe the healthcare to services generally comes through uh, like a local patronage network, you know, a local boss who is kind of tied into that sectarian system, you don't always have a lot of room to challenge it um, in the way that you do if you're maybe from uh, a slightly more, um, you know, urban or cosmopolitan or kind of upper class uh, milieu in the cities. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's similar to what you would see almost anywhere in the world, really, I would think. Um, but in that sense, yeah, so it's, it's, it, it really does, it really does, it really does vary a lot. Um, I mean, I think there is, you could say in Lebanon, in, in my experience, having lived there for uh, close to six years, you know, there's, there's a really widespread understanding that the system needs to change, mm -hmm. uh, that it is a huge impediment to uh, people leading a, you know, to, to, to leading better lives, to, um, to getting done the reforms that need to be done. And yet it's proved exceptionally difficult to challenge. And you could get into the reasons why and speculate about why. Part of it is that the, you know, the civil war legacy still really hangs very heavily. And um, it's also just very difficult to challenge. And then there's also been these interesting examples where the, um, the, 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 the leaders, the political elite, as they're often called, who are you know, kind of benefiting from the system, who are sitting at the top of it, have actually kind of banded together to protect the system whenever there's been a, a, um, like a challenge mounted against it. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, there was in the Beirut, there were municipal elections a couple of years ago. I think 2017 it was. I have to check that. Uh, but there was a group that was like largely youth driven. Um, a lot of younger people interested in reform. They called it Medinity, which means my city. And uh, their idea was to create kind of like a non-sectarian alternative and push uh, forward some like much needed reforms. And they gained quite a bit of traction in Beirut. Uh, but at the end of the day, they were defeated by this kind of coalition of uh, traditional sectarian leaders who are you know, uh, on paper, um, enemies <laughs> of one another, but showed a kind of an awareness that a challenge to the system was a challenge to their, like their, their privilege as well. And so, you know, in that sense, the, the kind of the, the hurdles that you, you face are enormous, regardless of, um, you know, the kind of generational differences or, 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 or any others that inform it. Mm. And you, when talking about, you know, smaller rural areas of Lebanon, you, you bring up these sort of entrenched systems of patronage. And uh, pretty clearly, the Shawish system is, uh, is another version of that. The Shawishes uh, serve as mediators between the Lebanese government and the people who live in these refugee camps. So how does the Lebanese government benefit from the Shawish system? And how does it differ from the way refugee settlements are organized in other countries? So, yeah, that's extremely interesting. Um, so, as I mentioned before, the, um, there was a pre-existing uh, agricultural system in Lebanon that goes back many decades uh, where seasonal uh, migrant laborers would come to 
uh, to Lebanon to work the fields, uh, you know, provided, you know, very cheap labor. You know, it's similar to a lot of migrant-based agricultural systems that you see all over the world. But these seasonal labor camps were controlled by a figure known as a shawish. So the shawish that we see today in the refugee camps is, you know, sort of a direct descendant of the shawish that you would have had in these camps. Uh, some of the shawish who run the camps today used to run seasonal labor camps. They converted their seasonal labor camps into refugee camps and just continued to be the shawish. Some of the other shawish are brand new. You know, they are refugees themselves. They ended up uh, running a camp for a variety of reasons. Maybe they were just the best at dealing with the NGOs or with the security agencies. Maybe they were, um, you know, a respected elder. Some of the more eastern areas of Syria or others, you'd have sort of a tribal sheikh who became a, a shawish um, as kind of a, you know, kind of a patriarchal authority figure and just transferring that authority. You know, there's a lot of variation, but it is a continuation of a pre-existing system whereby a shawish would act as kind of a broker between this formal or sorry, this informal or, or semi-formal world and then the, you know, and then the, um, the world of Lebanese uh, officialdom sort of as a, you know, so there's always been this broker angle. And so when the refugee crisis really got going, the Lebanese government pretty quickly or, you know, in as much as you can talk about the Lebanese government as a kind of a, you know, a, a unit that acts cohesively, mm. which you can't always. But the Lebanese uh, authorities found themselves uh, very swiftly to be in need of more brokers of this sort, people who could who could kind of um, fulfill the needs that they needed fulfilled with regard to the refugees without formalizing the refugees' presence. As, as I mentioned, you know, there was this there's this widespread fear of, you know, how formalizing the refugees, establishing formal camps, giving them visas, anything like that would, would encourage them to stay. You'd lead to a repeat of the Palestinian situation, et cetera. So, so the go-to option was to try to keep them in an, it's sort of this informal state of limbo and encourage them to return if possible, uh, but really to just kind of keep them in this, this limbo, continue to benefit from the labor supply uh, in as much as, as, as much as possible, but you know, avoid formalizing the presence, avoid issuing visas, avoid setting up camps. But also at the same time, you know, you need as a state, you need the ability to monitor them. You need mm -hmm. the ability to keep track of them. You need an ability to kind of control their movements. You need, you know, you do need to have some sort, you can't just completely ignore their presence and, and just, you know, let, let whatever, whatever happens, happens. You need to kind of, um, even if you don't acknowledge that these camps um, are real in an official sense or that the refugees are even there or that they're even refugees, you do need to try to keep an eye on them in some way, and you need, do need to try to, to try to discipline them in some way. And so that's the role that the shawish really fills. From the perspective of the Lebanese authorities, it's a necessary role. Um, if you are a security agency, what's important to you in a shawish? Uh, a shawish needs to make sure that you know, the illegal activities in the camp are, uh, are limited, that there are nobody with uh, sympathies for uh, Islamist uh, groups who could be a security threat. Um, you need to keep track of them. You need to register new arrivals, you know, keep track of it when people leave the camp, when they move around, and then report all of this back to the security agencies. And from their perspective, these are, these are some of the most important functions. Local employers, particularly farmers, also need somebody to continue to supply labor. Um, they can't just go around to every single camp and, you know, and, just, and just pull people out you know, randomly. Um, they need somebody to coordinate uh, a steady supply of labor to the fields to ensure that the operations uh, continue to move smoothly. Uh, so this is another role that the Shuish uh, fulfills. NGOs as well, uh, it's worth saying, uh, need to, you know, if you look at sort of Jordan or, you know, almost any other uh, country where there's large camps, it's, it's, it's relatively straightforward for, uh, you know, the UN agencies or other NGOs to deliver services because, you know, you have these big formal camps. When we were talking about the Bekaa Valley in, in Lebanon, you have hundreds and hundreds of these uh, camps, and some of them just in the middle of in the middle of fields, in the middle of nowhere, uh, very difficult to access, very difficult to keep track of. You know, it it behooves NGOs to have a figure that they can go to who is going to help them coordinate the delivery of of aid. Right. Uh, and I sort of discussed that in the piece. It's still extremely, um, you know, kind of kind of piecemeal. It's very uh, it's very ad hoc a lot of the time. Uh, but at least you have somebody who you can go to this camp and say this person's in charge. You know, a, there's a delivery of bread or a delivery of uh, blankets, uh, winter clothes, um, something like that. And I can talk to this person who will help coordinate it. 
that obviously opens up a lot of uh, room for um, local corruption as well. But uh, you know, this is this is also part of the system. I mean, it's very interesting. The roles that they fulfill are, you know, are. Um, I, I think to, to me, one of the main kind of lessons of the Shuish is that even when you have a system that is where authorities are trying as hard as possible to keep it informal, you still have these forms of formalization or these formalization of, of, of certain roles just out of pure necessity, uh, because these functions need to be fulfilled and something's going to fill that vacuum. And in this case, it was the Shuish. And you visit two different Shuishes in the piece and you hear stories about others. Could you paint a picture of what the average person's life was like in the camps you visited? Again, you say these are essentially sort of like expanded seasonal labor camps. And how many of these settlements would you estimate are in the valley? And is there a lot of sort of variation in terms of living conditions? Sure, yeah. So I think that so the um the refugee population in Lebanon has been tough to track. I think it was in 2015, uh, the Lebanese government had the UNHCR stop registering new uh, refugee arrivals. Uh, so that was right around the numbers. The official numbers of registered refugees were hitting around 1 million. The estimates of how many there actually are is, is varies a lot. But, you know, you could say probably about a million and a half. That's a figure that Lebanese officials have, 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 have discussed. You know, it might be more, it might be a little less. But anyway, it's, it's difficult to kind of keep track of exactly how many there are and where because of some of these problems. But I think the estimates are that around 40% of the refugee population is in the Bekaa Valley. Uh, in terms of the, these small Shawish-run camps, a large portion of them, uh, I, I, could, I could actually I could look up the exact number. I think that they're out there, but, um, I, but a large portion of them would be in the, in the Bekaa Valley. Mm -hmm. Some of the other major areas of concentration are in like northern Lebanon near the, uh, in this region called Akkar uh, and the surrounding regions, like near the Syrian border, and then also in the south, which is also an agricultural uh, area. So you, you also have camps there. But uh, the Bekaa Valley is definitely sort of, I mean, you could say the, the heart, and that's largely because of this agricultural history and the proximity uh, to Syria. In terms of what daily life is like, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's an entire, I mean, it's an entire self-contained world uh, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways. I mean, people's lives move on, right? Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that I really wanted to write this piece because you know, I spent a long time as a reporter at Reuters, and I was going to the Bukha Valley regularly or refugee camps in other parts of the country. And every time you do one of these stories, it kind of has to, uh, it kind of has to say the same thing. Uh, you have to focus on, you know, the, the suffering that's endured, uh, you know, flooding in winter, uh, heat stroke in summer, um, the lack of AIDS, you know, the lack of work, the you know, the kind of just general misery of the conditions, which is very real and uh, should not be diminished. But at the same time, even as people are enduring that, lives move on. And these camps, which started off in a lot of cases, is these completely makeshift uh, ad hoc settlements that grew up just in whatever area was most convenient to uh, or most possible uh, for people to, um, to, uh, to settle in. Uh, have become something like small villages. You know, they've become these kind of uh, settled communities in which people have very vibrant relations, relationships with one another. They have uh, structures of authority. They have, you know, you see mutual aid, you see competition, you see people, you know, there's, you know, people falling in love and out of love and divorce and having children and, you know, children growing up. And uh, it's all happening within these extremely, extremely confined spaces. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, in, in a way, it's, it's, it's far more confined than like, uh, obviously, people who are, you know, not confined to a, a camp have like a much broader scope of, of experience. But what really struck me going to these camps again and again is just like the, is the, is the extent to which people try to, like, just try to live their lives, you know, plant a small garden, um, you know, uh, beautify the walls of their homes. Um, there's, 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 there's romances and dramas and you know, kind of uh, fortunes rise and fall. To some, well, I mean, everybody's kind of within a, you know, kind of a restrained sphere. But it's, you know, it, on one level, it's extremely mundane, uh, because there's often not work. And there's often very little to, you know, very little to do from day to day. Uh, but 
at the same time, you know, life goes on and people don't lose their ambition um, and they don't lose their sort of uh, their aspirations or their hopes or their kind of their, their just desire to to try to live as full a life as possible because they're in these conditions. So, you know, it's 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 really hard to kind of summarize what you know what life is like. It's as varied as individuals who are in mm-hmm. it, but um, you know, it's that's something that you know it's, it's it's very obvious in a way because humans are people. But it's uh, you know it's something that when you read coverage of refugee issues, broadly speaking, uh, whether it's in the newswires or newspapers or magazines, it's that's, you know, that's an element of life that's often because of, I think, the a limited ability to capture um, complexity that is often, it's, it's often sort of brushed over right. it's, or it's, it's forgotten. Yeah. And you haven't been back or you visited last year, right? Yeah. The last time I was there was about a year ago. Um, I intended to go this year, but the... Um, the virus. With coronavirus, yeah. Well, I want to... Yeah. Well, speaking of coronavirus, from a distance, this may be hard to sort of get a sense of, but how has that impacted life in these camps? And more broadly, there's a larger existential threat that has been politicized, which is climate change. And that's also oft, very often left out of the, the you know, coverage of the refugee crisis. So how would you describe the, the potential impact of climate change or climate change issues that have already started to impact life in the camps? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so uh, so Syria and Lebanon generally, the, the Middle East faces a pretty a pretty pretty bleak um, climate change outlook. Um, I mean, I think that you know, in terms of the, you know, this is this is not something that I've looked at uh, entirely recently, but I mean, generally speaking, um, Lebanon, I think, is you know, is 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 facing a great is will face a great deal of strain um, as Syria already has uh, increasing droughts. Uh, is a major risk. It's hard to point to a really specific impact of climate change on camp life itself in the in the in the period that the camps have been there, which is coming up on a decade now. But broadly speaking, you know, climate change is making all of the dilemmas uh, that are keeping this situation in place even harder and harder to resolve. Um, People talk about Syria as a conflict that was heavily influenced by climate change. Right. There's controversy over that because it's important not to minimize, you know, the, the sort of political and social factors, economic factors, and the choices that people made along the way. But if you look back to this drought that Syria had in 2006 and 2007, it displaced something like, I think, about a million uh, people from northeastern, largely in northeastern Syria, who were forced to abandon their land. They moved to cities. They were often living in pretty difficult conditions. And a lot of these areas where they settled uh, or the areas that were drought stricken where they came from were some of the uh, most active uh, opposition areas in the, in the early stages of the conflict and, and, and moving forward. Those pressures are just increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're increasing in Lebanon. They're increasing in Syria. Um, you know, was Syria's conflict inevitable because of climate change? Definitely not. But is climate change making it more and more difficult to uh, resolve the um, inequities and the um, the impoverishment and uh, the general uh, sort of um, dysfunction that uh, that is that is causing Syria to maintain its current state and is, is fueling uh, new conflicts, definitely. Um, and so, I mean, f- from my perspective, where climate change becomes really uh, relevant when you're looking at something like the Bekaa is that we live in a world in which uh, climate pressures are, are putting more and more people in these conditions. More and more people are being forced to flee their homes, flee the countries of their birth, or they're being displaced within those countries, either because of the direct impacts of climate change uh, through drought or flooding or what have you, or through the conflicts that are exacerbated uh, or fueled by climate change. And we really, we live in an age of of displacement in this sense. Mm -hmm. And when you have large numbers of people who um, who's, who 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 have to who have to move, and then they don't fit neatly into the nation state system and the the system in which we assign rights uh, and privileges within it. You know, we end up with systems like we find in the Bekaa mm-hmm. with the Shuish system, where people are living in a kind of a permanent limbo, uh, not able to go back, 
not able to be integrated where they are. And to me, Lebanon is a particularly vivid illustration of what that looks like, you know, and how long you can keep these kind of systems, these temporary, these ostensibly temporary or emergency systems uh, in place uh, and how they just eventually become normalized. And you have an entire generation. At this point, you have, you know, kids in their teens who can't remember a life outside of these camps in the Bekaa. Mm -hmm. uh, they, uh, they can't, you know, they can't remember life uh, under anything other than a shawish. And it's, it's, it's a unique example because Lebanon's unique and because it's, it's history, um, you know, it has its own particular history. It has its own political, you know, so, sort of specific historical factors that led to the situation. But this idea of just placing people in limbo is, 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 is by no means uh, unique. And that, is the, and that is the solution that more and more states are relying on as they're faced with refugee crises, which are, you know, I, I think it's, it's very safe to say are being at the very least exacerbated. By, um, by climate change. Right. And you just mentioned that we are coming up on a decade of the situation and no one's really dealing with it in a proactive way. You know, the non-policy policy, right? So mm -hmm. how do you predict the crisis will unfold over the next few years? I mean, is it going to sort of remain in this weird stasis where no one is really no one is really dealing with it or do you feel like maybe the at least the scapegoating of syrian refugees may decrease as you know these the social movements we were talking about earlier are kind of exerting more pressure on the people at the top yeah i mean i, I wish i had a sort of an optimistic outlook on it um i might have spent too much time i mean if if you look at the main pressures that are keeping um this the system in place um we're talking about, of course, Lebanon, mm -hmm. which we we'll move back to, but we're also talking about the situation in Syria. Right. And one of the main factors that's preventing people from moving back to Syria, in addition, is, well, there's, there's, there's a couple. But uh, one, there is an economic crisis in Syria, which is just as severe, uh, if not more, uh, in some, on some level than, uh, than Lebanon's. And then two, there is still the ever-present threat of conscription. Mm -hmm. If you are a man of conscription age, which is very wide, range of ages. And even if you're completely apolitical, uh, even if you are, you know, not necessarily uh, ideologically um, opposed to uh, the Assad regime, uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a major factor that's preventing a lot of people from going back. The dynamics in Syria I don't at the moment seem to be moving toward a, a swift re resolution of that. And I think even if there was sort of a peace deal or a peace settlement in Syria, it would be very difficult for a lot of people to really fully trust the situation mm -hmm. um, without uh, a very high degree of guarantees. And it's hard to see how that would, would, would develop. So the, 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 um, the factors keeping people from going back to Syria are very real. At the same time, on the other side of the equation, you know, you have Europe, the United States, uh, richer countries, uh, countries that uh, in theory could take in a lot more people, resettle a lot of people who are increasingly uh, closing their doors right. to refugees, to, to migrants. You know, we've seen the rise of far-right populism across the world, and in particular in Europe and the U.S., and a lot of decision makers are, 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 are wary of that. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a new, there's new levels of kind of nationalism that are preventing people. So it's becoming... Well, it's, you know, well, it's, it's not getting any easier to go back to Syria. It's becoming much harder to, um, to get out of this limbo into a situation that allows you to move forward with your life a little bit more by going to Europe or the United States or, where, or wherever. And so people are staying stuck. And I don't, I, I don't know if anything is going to significantly alter those two factors uh, anytime soon. Um, that's very difficult to say. Within Lebanon, uh, the, the scope for integration uh, of the Syrian refugees uh, within the Lebanese kind of like framework of citizenship and belonging, uh, I would say, unfortunately, are quite slim. Um, I don't want to say it's completely impossible. I mean, th there is, uh, of course, there, I, you know, you won't, don't want to, you know, sort of just abandon hope that something uh, could change. But if you look at the Palestinians, as I mentioned earlier, there's still around half a million uh, in the country mm -hmm. who are the descendants. And, you know, I, I used to work actually in one of the uh, main Palestinian camps. And, um, you know, I was uh, just teaching English for a while. And the kids I was teaching were sort of, I think they were third or fourth generation, third mm -hmm. generation, I think, being born in Lebanon. 
And they didn't have citizenship. They didn't have, you know, they were still facing the same restrictions that their parents and their grandparents did. Lebanon has figured out a way of maintaining this sort of limbo for another population of Palestinians already, and it's lasted decades. And there's not any, that's not even really in the, in the discussion at the moment. So the Syrians, you know, it's hard to say whether, you know, if that, if that equation can really be broken. I mean, I guess there, I mean, there are ways, but um, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to be too, uh, you know, uh, just kind of um, cynical about it all. But uh, the scope so far is, has been fairly limited. And I would also emphasize that Lebanon, as a small country facing its like its you know its own sort of uh, historical factors, and not as a particularly wealthy country, is one of the is only one of the factors. You know, Syria and Europe and America, like the, the you know the entire global uh, system, sort of plays into it. So yeah, I wish I could. I wish I had a better outlook on it. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't know that. No, I mean, I mean, it's a. It's hard to have a optimistic outlook about anything right now because things are so uncertain not just with the pandemic but the economic effects of the pandemic the emotional factor of the pandemic like there's so many things and as we were saying you know climate change is only going to intensify more people are going to be displaced so i mean there are no easy answers and there's no, you know, nobody's really stepped up where you're like, oh, yeah, that's uh, that person is going to fix this or this group of people are going to fix it. So I, I, I understand your um, yeah. hesitance. Absolutely. Okay, I'll add one more thing, I guess, it just occurred to me, which is that I think for, for me personally, like um, I, feel, I feel like, you know, I, I maybe I, I, I don't know, like a lot of people, we kind of think like we see a situation like in the Bika or something like that. And we think like, oh, this is so bad, something has to give. Uh, but for me, one of the kind of more with the Palestinian situation in Lebanon and, and this, the state that it's been in for so long, it's, it's, it's kind of a, I think one of the main lessons for me is just like how long things can, problems can remain unfixed right. and how they can just kind of stay like that. I mean, it seems so bad that it seems like something would have to get fixed, but they often just don't and sometimes people forget about them and i think i i mean my main fear is that that is a risk with syrian refugees throughout the middle east uh in lebanon is where i have the most experience but i you know i i think we can't really afford to get kind of complacent or overly optimistic just because the problem is so bad just assuming right. that it's going to have to get fixed it can go on for generations and generations and it has in many cases right so yeah, I don't know. It's it's good for us to kind of be aware of that. I think. I mean, for me, that was a kind of a that was kind of a major disillusioning sort of uh, sort of insight of you know of of looking at refugees in Lebanon and how it's played out historically. Right. And I guess really quick, I wanted to talk about the two Shawishes you met in the you you talked to in the piece. What made you choose those two camps in particular? And I guess, have you been in touch with Omar Abdullah or any of the other subjects since finishing the piece? Yeah, I stay in touch with uh, Omar. Uh, he is just a really nice guy. Um, I mean, uh, I really respect the work that he does. Uh, I think that he also is just kind of just a very genuinely kind of kind person who cares a lot about the work that he does and is willing to put up with extremely frustrating circumstances to try to lighten the load a little bit mm -hmm. for other people. And I've kept, I've kept in touch with him. The situation for him is, is you know, it's, it's, I, I mean, for, for most people, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of ground on. Um, the economic crisis in Lebanon has gotten worse and worse. And I don't think we've really seen the worst of it yet. Unfortunately, there's a lot of kind of knockoff effects of inflation and the deterioration of the Lebanese pound that are probably going to begin to bite even worse than they already have. You know, it's, it's been a steady degradation of conditions, a steady deterioration of conditions for a lot of people, you know, in the camps. You know, a lot of people complain about the UN scaling back some of the uh, aid that they've provided. Um, they, you know, talk about like the, uh, the deterioration of, of, of the value of their wages. Um, there has still been work in agriculture, but if you're getting paid, you know, if you were only getting paid a few thousand Lebanese pounds before, if you're only getting, you know, and that was worth a couple dollars, 
you know, now it's worth, uh, you know, one fifth of what it did before, which is already really meager. So it's, it's tough. And, you know, it's, I, I think I mentioned in the piece, you know, there was a man who set himself on fire because he couldn't take it. Um, and I don't think that's an uncommon, you know, not, not everyone's going to those lengths. Uh, that's still an outlier. But I think that sense of despair is very real. And I've kept in touch. Uh, I've kept in touch with Amsha and, uh, you know, she uh, will send me voice messages fairly frequently. For her, the people that are in her camp, you know, like almost every camp I've been to, one of the overriding concerns is migration. How do you get out? How do you get out of this situation? How do you get to Europe? How do you get to Canada? How do you get to the US? Like, is there any way, you know, because it just, you know, even if you can kind of scrape by from day to day, just being in that limbo is intolerable for a lot of people, you know, especially if you're seeing your kids grow up in it. So people really want to get out. And, um, you know, Amshe, I'd say she's like a very skillful shawish in the sense that like she does what she, what a, you know, what a good shawish will do, or a good shawish, you know, like uh, what, a, you know, what a, one of the roles of a shawish is to advocate for the people uh, in your camp and with aid agencies, with anybody who would cross your path, who could potentially help them out. So, you know, there's this constant fear of getting shortchanged by aid agencies. You're constantly trying to get as much as you can, like out of the system that's giving you so little or just giving you enough to scrape by. And you're just trying to get more and more and more. And it can, you know, you can view that as kind of people being, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, some shawish are corrupt for sure. And although it's like within a context in which it's like, what does, what does corruption really mean? Um, you know, but, you know, you have to just try to milk as much as you can out of the system. And I think Amshay is very like, uh, you know, she's, she, she puts me in touch with people who she thinks maybe I can give some advice about how to uh, get out of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, my ability to do that is pretty limited usually, but, you know, she's, she's always kind of like getting in touch to ask me uh, if, there, if there's any way that I can help out and, you know, try to, even if there's not. Um, I think probably, you know, she knows that I, there's limited amount that I can do, but it's always worth trying. But, you know, I mean, broadly speaking in her camp, much like in Talib's, much like in everywhere, it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, there's just a sense of like a stagnation of, of kind of gradual deterioration of the walls closing in in some way or another, uh, you know, a mix of trying to scrape by from day to day and then also just trying to escape if you can. Right. There are two examples. The reasons that I, sorry, I guess I can answer the second part of your question or the first part, I guess it was, but um, about why I chose these camps specifically. Was mm-hmm. that? So, I mean, Amshe, I, I chose because she's just a, a fantastically compelling person. I mean, there's no, I mean, you just kind of see at the moment that she walks into the room. I mean, first of all, she's a female shawish, which is very rare. You know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of shawish kind of the Shuish system, in as much as it was kind of new or novel in a lot of ways, did draw on pre-existing structures of authority, whether it was, um, you know, people who used to run seasonal camps and were like labor brokers, or people who were like the head of a tribe, or people who were just, you know, kind of respected patriarchal figures in their family. But often they, they drew on kind of uh, pre-existing hierarchies and sets of, you know, uh, patterns of authority. Amshe is a woman that's fairly rare to see. Uh, Often the female shawishas you see were kind of in some way uh, empowered by NGOs. That's also, I've, I've met other female shawish who fell into that category. Amshe seemed to do it through just sheer force of will, as far as I could tell. I mean, she's just an extremely powerful personality. And I think really in many ways shows the complexity of what this what, what a shawish is like what this role is that that we've kind of that that lebanon is you know kind of managed to create um through this formalized informality you know it's 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 really this fine line between um i guess i guess like all authority in a way between sort of uh exploitation and mm-hmm. advocacy uh for the people below you i mean you are in a position of authority you have a lot of power and some shawish exercise that power really responsibly or really, um, you know, benevolently and others uh, don't. But, you know, the role itself is one in which that, that kind of tension or complexity and ambiguity is always, is always there. Talib, uh, Talib's camp I chose because I thought I wanted to really try to illustrate how these relationships with um, NGOs and aid organizations uh, function when you have a system that's so dispersed and fragmented as you do in Lebanon. It, to me, is 
you know, it's, it's, it's similar in some ways to how it would function in another country, but in another way, it's, you know, it, you know, when you, when you see these kind of micro negotiations that are constantly occurring just to get something like a, um, you know, um, tarps delivered so you could build a small mosque or, you know, or, 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 or some blankets or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, gravel for a new soccer field, these tiny little negotiations that have to occur to make that happen. Um, that's, you know, that was something that played out when I was at Talib's camp. And I thought that was like pretty, you know, interesting to, to observe and also is an important aspect of just how the system plays out. Um, I could also mention, I mean, I've met dozens of Shawish over the years and I've met some who did not appear in the piece, but were extremely compelling for other reasons. I met one a uh, guy who, when I first met him, his camp had just flooded and he was up to his ankles in this kind of, uh, this wastewater, this freezing wastewater from a burst pipe, just this totally miserable situation. Uh, and then the next time I saw him, he had moved his entire, uh, his entire camp to this, uh, to this other location that was better shielded from the flooding. And he had a tent, which was I mean, I hesitate to use the word luxurious because it's still a, a, a tent, but he, you know, he had tiles and he had like a TV and he had, you know, indoor, I think it was indoor plumbing even. It was wow. very uh, remarkable. You know, he kind of turned it into like a, a small house, you know, and, and he had this kind of ornate tea set. And, you know, it was, it was just a, it was a really remarkable display of wealth for somebody who is himself a refugee. And in this situation, um, he had a car as well, I think, which is, a, which is an unusual thing for refugees that's, you know, sort of. I don't know where the money uh, came from or why he had it, but he kind of was a man of relative means, you know, despite being in this totally miserable situation in this in this camp. And when I went back to the Bukal to report this piece, I tried to find him and I tried to, um, yeah, and I tried to track him down. And uh, I went to his camp and I found out that he had gone. Hmm. Um, he had used his means to actually to uh, to go to Turkey and then from there on to Sweden. And I actually got his number from one of the guys there and I, I called him and talked to him and he remembered meeting me and we talked about it, but he was in Sweden now. He had, he was getting a, I think he was getting a driver's license. He was kind of, he, he was learning Swedish and, you know, he kind of almost talked about the camp sort of wistfully, you know, almost mm, uh, yeah. like remembering it, but yeah. he, but he was beyond it in a way too. He'd kind of, you know, he'd sort of broken out of this, this limbo, you know, and that's something that I think as well you know, you see from time to time, you know, people are able to break out of it. And this guy, as, as a Shuish, by virtue of his position, uh, was able to kind of use it to, to, to escape in some way. And now he found his way to the other side of Olympia. You know, and I, I don't think his life was perfect, but, you know, he was moving right. forward with it in some way, in a way that people in the Bukha can't, or he couldn't have if he stayed in the Bukha. Right. So that, you know, there's all kinds of interesting people you meet. I, I, I met another who I think I mentioned briefly, who was quite open about the fact that, you know, he had, uh, young, like, uh, you know, children working in the fields effectively. Um, and he saw that as, you know, part of the bargain, you know, he's providing work, he's mm -hmm. providing a service to the people there. And one of the interesting things is that actually, you know, in, in as much as people's scope of movement is, is quite limited, technically you can, there's nothing really preventing you from moving to one camp to another. If you, if you don't like the shawish or you don't like the deal that they're giving you. It can be really hard in practical terms, but there's nothing, typically there's nothing really preventing you. So, you know, his perspective was, well, you know, this is the deal, you know, yeah, like I'll, you know, send the kids to the fields, but, uh, you know, that's income. And if that's not the deal that you want, you can move on to another camp. So again, you know, the kind of the moral complexity of this role, uh, is, 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 is kind of endless. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's hard to really fully, um, sort of uh, talk about, you know, Shuish as a class, as, as a group that's either heroic or demonic or whatever, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, you know, this, this position of limbo, this endless limbo, this, this formalized informality has just created just endless moral complexities. And uh, at the end of the day, people just do what they feel like they need to do. Right. Well, nothing's really ever black and white, uh, I would argue, yeah. no matter what the job might be. Um, you know, you mentioned, this will be my last question. You mentioned Amsha getting in touch with you in the hopes of, you know, even though your means are pretty limited to help somebody get out of the camps, you're still at least trying to give advice and trying to um, do what you can. And in a way, you know, writing something like this is a, 
is a form of that, right? But we're in an era where, you know, there's so much information coming all the time, not just in terms of like competing information, you know, where Syrian refugees are demonic or their Syrian refugees are immediately need help, but just in terms of the sheer volume of information out there. So how do you see your role as a reporter on this on this particular issue in this, you know, in Lebanon? Do you see it generating change? Or I guess is that is that this might be too this might be too big of a question to ask. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's yeah, that's fair. Um no, I mean it's something I've thought about a lot. I don't know that thinking about it a lot has really led to any truly clear um conclusions about it. I mean, I think on some level you do you do want things to change and you kind of that's the the hope is that you, you maybe by trying to trying to put forward an image of you're trying to put forward a, rep- a representation of, of of what's happening, you can in some way get people to think about things a little differently or a little more critically that can lead to 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 some kind of positive change in some way. For sure. I think that's the hope. You know, I, I've been a journalist long enough to know that that really doesn't work out in practice a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, sometimes when uh, what you're writing about uh, does get attention, um, it doesn't get attention for the reasons that you thought it did. It doesn't, right. um, you know, and people just kind of bring their own biases to it. They do what they want or they come away with it with the conclusions that they want to draw. You can't help it. You know, I don't. I, you know, it's you can't really help how people are going to read things or how they're going to react to it or if they're going to read it. And I think that if you're kind of depending on that as the motivation, the primary motivation for doing journalism, um, it's just going to end up being pretty crushing pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah, it's just it's difficult. And I get it. You know, I understand. Um, I mean, for me, what's the what's the most basic thing you can re- rely on? Um, you, you try to do something that is true something that presents an image that is sufficiently nuanced uh, to to be true, and you and you hope that people read it and come up, that somebody reads it and comes away with like a slightly more you know sort of sophisticated understanding of a certain situation or just thinks about things in a slightly different way that leads them to maybe take actions that even if they don't change the situation maybe help in another sphere or something. I mean, you are trying to help people understand the world a little bit better. And I think the more people understand situations like in the Bacaw with all the nuance that it entails, like, you know, the, the better things are, but obviously your impacts, one's impact is extremely limited. I, I mean, I think at the end of the day as well, if you can just kind of, if you can just add something to the record, mm. that's truthful in some way that, you know, maybe that is the most kind of, you know, that maybe that's the most basic thing you can, you can kind of hope for. On some level, you're also just indulging your own curiosity, right? right. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, to be honest, you, you know, there's there's like a, there's an egotistical element uh, to it as as well. You hope it helps. Uh, maybe it doesn't. It's a really tricky one. Fair fair enough. <laughs> um, so thank you for talking. This was really excellent. Good. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.